Ladies, how many of you know he's your living hope because you dwell with him every day? Right? You're with him. You know he's alive. You know that he's working, that he's there loving you, taking care of you, providing a home for you, providing benefit after benefit after benefit. There's so much hope in knowing that he is alive. And we know that because we dwell in him in his son Jesus, in Christ. That is our Father's house. And we've been talking about that all weekend, and we're going to keep doing it tonight. I'm not sure either how we've gotten to the last night so fast, right? It flies by. It does that every year. But every year I think, oh, it's not going to. And then before I know it, it's Saturday night. But here we are. It's Saturday night. It definitely is. But we are going to really have a neat experience together tonight, and I'm really looking forward to it. So I think it might be one of our most meaningful gatherings of the whole weekend, and I hope that it will be. So let's have hope, right? That living hope in that. So tonight we're actually going to copy our scriptures. Some of you are already already, but I'm going to switch it up on you. We're going to copy our scriptures throughout the scope of the message, okay? So just have your journals handy and nearby, and I'll direct you to copy the verses at the different times. So... Um, And I want to mention, I hope that you have enjoyed copying the scriptures. I personally find that when I slow down enough to do that, right, that I actually see things and hear things that I wouldn't see otherwise within the verses. And so I really hope that you will continue to utilize this tool when you go home, you know, in various ways. And I mean, you know, just ask the Lord to show you some creative ways to use it with even in your own church or, you know, as your pastor preaches, maybe, you know, you take your journal with you and you're copying the passages or you come home that afternoon and do that or, you know, podcasts that you listen to or like I told you earlier, we have a whole year's worth of copying plans on our website that you could utilize and it's a great thing to do with children to have them copying scriptures not as punishment but as privilege right as privilege right so so many ways we can incorporate it so as I said we're going to copy when we go tonight but I did want us to take a moment right now and review those verses that we've been memorizing so let's just start at the beginning and hopefully you can say a lot of this from memory glance down at your card if you need but you know how it begins One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. Look at you guys. That's awesome. Awesome stuff. Let's add in that next line, all right? And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Let's say it again. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, right? So why don't we let that line be the first scripture that we copy. And hopefully you don't even have to copy it. You know it, right? I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Let's write that down as we begin. Lord.
Lord God, this is your house. And all weekend, we have been sitting with you, hanging out with you, listening to you. Lord, and tonight we're still here. It's Saturday night in the Father's house, and we want to hear you speak. We want you to expound on this word that we just wrote down in our journals, and our ears are open, our hearts are open. Holy Spirit, come. Be with us. Move amongst us. Speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you this as we get started. How many of you have ever bought or lived in a house that needed work? <laughs> me too. We probably also have stories about that. I can tell you pretty much every house that I've lived in since I got married has needed something done to it. Even the new house that we bought two years ago when we moved in, I knew there were a couple projects waiting for me. When I got married, though, one of the first dwellings that I lived in with my husband was actually a small apartment in the guy's dorm at the Christian college that we attended down in Atlanta. Uh, Marvin, my husband, had taken a job as the head RA in resident assistant in this particular dormitory. And so that meant we got the privilege of living in this very special place. And when I say special, oh, I mean very special. If you could just picture a very old, very old dormitory building, and they had taken two of the cinder block dorm rooms and basically grouped them together to make an apartment. So one of the rooms was the bedroom, one of the rooms was the living room, and then the closet they actually renovated, and it was a very small closet, so they renovated it into a kitchen and a bathroom, the tiniest ones you've ever seen. In fact, I, I am absolutely certain that I had the smallest countertops anybody has ever had. They were literally that wide. I don't even know why they bothered. They put this piece of Formica about that wide right there. You could not even sit a dinner plate down in the sink. It was like a little camper sink. Okay, so that was our first home. And in fact, the headboard of our bed on the other side of the cinder block wall was the guy's bathroom. So if you can just imagine what my first year of marriage was like, quite, quite special. So this little apartment needed a lot of work in all kinds of ways, but really what needed the most work was the issue that this apartment had with bugs, specifically roaches. So now I am a girly girl. If you haven't figured that out yet, I'm definitely a girly girl. I hate bugs. I always have, and I hate roaches even more. They are in a class all by themselves. And if you've ever lived in the South, you realize that bugs down there come in the supersized version. So that just makes you hate them all the more. So when we moved into this apartment and I started seeing them literally everywhere, I knew we had to fix this situation right away. So we tried a lot of things and all of them failed. Because when you live in a very old building with a bunch of gross college guys, it's impossible to get rid of roaches, all right? Even the college dormitory, you know, the maintenance crew, they came and sprayed, did all that stuff, but nothing worked. So we took matters into our own hands, which meant basically that our first DIY project as a couple was lining the baseboards along the carpet of our whole apartment with boric acid, okay, to keep the roaches at bay. It was just lovely. <laughs> and it really wasn't just lovely at all. Actually, it was toxic. <laughs> and it was horrible and it looked awful. And and I would say it kind of worked. 
like it would kill the roaches like as they tried to cross the threshold of this powder you know but that meant you just had roaches for your decorations all around the apartment it was really gross and over the 33 years that we have been married we've lived in nine different houses everything from a pre-civil war antique to two brand new houses and in every house we've had some kind of issue that needed some kind of help and very, very rarely have we called in an expert to help us. And for most of the time, that's been because we just think we can do it ourselves and we're very frugal or financially, it was just, you know, we needed to take care of that. So we have done everything. I mean, we have laid floors, we have painted, we have put in countertops, we have, you know, fixed up furniture that most of the time we found on the side of the road. And I'm like, oh, stop, stop, we gotta get that, you know? And then we make it into something great. We've cut down trees, we've torn down walls, we've caulked cracks we have fixed plumbing you name it we have probably done it can anybody else in the room also wear that DIY badge on your test like we we are the DIY people we know all about it and it sounds like some of you do too but as thankful as I have been and I and I really am I mean I make a little bit of fun of it and we got off to a rough start with the boric acid we've come a long way since then and I don't have roaches in my house today I'm very thankful but as thankful as I have been for all of the ways that we have been able to improve things in our homes more often than not after all the work was done sacrificing money sleep time energy sometimes skipping dinner or whatever you know because you're in the middle and you're just going to finish the project the outcome of the DIY project still left just a little bit to be desired. Even in the moments when I was like all excited because man, it just looks so good. We got the walls painted or we finally knocked down that wall and opened up the space or you know, the different things that we did. If you looked really closely, something still just wasn't quite right. Like maybe things were just a little crooked or this seam didn't match just so, so you just put something kind of in front of it and hope nobody notices, right? Or maybe the ceiling fan's just a little crooked or the faucet leaks just a little bit, but hey, we got it done. It feels better. It's better than it was. I don't know. Can anybody relate to that? Have you done any DIYs? And you're like, man, that's so good, but oh, it's just not just perfect. And I guess that's going to have to be. It still had a little bit of a fail to it. I can tell you after 33 years of all of that, I could tell you so many different stories and Mackenzie could probably join in on some of them. I even remember when she was very young and her um, brother who's four and a half years younger than her, we would put them to bed and, and we would paint sometimes. And one time Marvin even, we had a stairway that went like this and then it turned and we, it was like a, um, the, the ceiling was like a two story ceiling there. And so we needed to paint the top of it. And we had to wait till the kids were in bed because you can't paint when you have little kids running around, right? And so it was like midnight and we're painting, but we can't reach that last place. And so my husband's like, all right, that's what we're going to do because I'm not afraid of heights. And he put the ladder, like he held it right here. He put it here and then we put the other, you know, because it went up like that and he put the other one on the, on the step like about halfway up. And then I climbed up to the top. And it's like midnight. I mean, we're exhausted anyway. And when I started climbing, I'm like, you, you don't have the ladder the right way. Like he had the rungs, you know, he had the part that had the steps right here, but we didn't want to take the time to turn it around. So I climbed up the wrong side of the ladder, stood up the very top as he's holding this half and like reached this paintbrush that we put like on the end of a broom to get all the way up there. I mean, you can see the things that we have done. But even still, usually later, it was like, oh, we still missed the spot, you know? 
there's some kind of a little fail to it. And I could tell you, like I said, so many stories, but that's not what we're here to do tonight, and I know you know that. I told you all of that because it does give us a background, though, to consider the benefits of dwelling in the Lord's house that he wants to impress us tonight. And the benefit is found in those words that you just copied in your journals just a moment ago. Say them or read them with me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. The benefit we're gonna to discuss tonight, it's on your note page, is joy. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Joy that comes from the perfect fix. The perfect fix that he works in us. And that joy doesn't leave anything to be desired. You're not gonna have to walk by and go, oh, if we could just get this little part right. It's a joy that isn't lacking. And we're gonna talk about why. See, I think most of us, I mean, even especially if you grew up in church and you're singing songs about the joy of the Lord and all these things, you, you have a general idea in your mind that you know there's going to be joy in heaven there's going to be joy in the house of the lord but maybe we haven't ever really taken the time or the detailed thought processes to think about why is there joy in the house of the lord and to see how that joy can really affect us every single day when we're literally dwelling in the house of the lord and so tonight that's what we're going to do see how many of us know that when jesus saved us yes he brought us salvation but there was a lot of stuff in, in our lives that still needed to be fixed. Can anybody yeah. you know, say amen to that? Yes, thank you, Jen. Yes, anybody else? <laughs> me and Jen, me and Jen. Anybody else in the room? Okay, yes, yes, right? And, and obviously, right? Because that's why we needed salvation. And I'm so thankful that when Jesus saves us, he does give us the key to his house. And, and his perfect becomes our home if we choose to dwell there. His perfect home becomes our home if we choose to dwell there. But... What we have to understand is that the full perfection of his perfect salvation doesn't take place right away, all right? Now, let me be careful to explain here because some of you might be going, what, what, what? Salvation is absolutely a full and perfect, complete work that he does in us and through us, but it also takes place on a timeline. And that understanding is so, so, so important to grasp. In fact, it's so important that over the years, I've created a bunch of different detailed resources. I talk about it all the time because I think it's really foundational and uh, life-changing to understand this. And so, um, you know, if you want to look even on our website, we have some things about that. But tonight on your notes page, I gave this little, very, very simple um, box that has some information if you want to follow along with me in that to talk about the timeline of our salvation. See, understanding God's perfect work of salvation in our lives begins that we, by realizing that we are made in the image of God in three parts. God is made, or God, he isn't made, he, he is, and that's a whole nother discussion, right? But God is Father, Son, and Spirit, right? He's three parts, but he's one, he's one, and three, that's the mystery of the Trinity. As we are made in his image, we are also three parts. And those parts are spirit, soul, and body. And you can see that right on the left-hand side of that box, okay? And every part of us, God desires to experience the full, complete work of, our, of his salvation. He died and was buried and rose again for your spirit, your soul, and your body, all the parts of you to experience salvation. 
The timeline, though, of that salvation is different for each part, and it happens in different ways. So let's talk about them. When we first accept Jesus, our spirit is what is experiencing salvation in that moment. When you express your um, belief in Jesus Christ, you ask him into your life, what happens in that moment, and it happens immediately, it's like a birth of a baby that, you know, you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the baby to come, and then the baby's there, right? Just, uh, has anybody, I mean, obviously if you're a mother, you've been in the living room, but have you ever been in the living room and watched a birth? Yes. I got to watch my son being born. My, both my children are adopted, and I was invited into the living room for him. And so, I, I mean, I literally saw it, and it's immediate. Like, we've been waiting all day, and then boom, the baby comes. And it's the same way for us when we accept Jesus. There is an immediate birth. That's why the Bible talks about us being reborn in Christ. Because when we are born into this world, our spirit is dead, right? In the likeness of Adam, our spirit is dead. As precious as those little babies are, are when they're born, their spirit is dead. They need salvation. The Bible's very clear about that. So when we accept Jesus, it happens immediately. This rebirth of our spirit. Christ comes to life inside of our spirit. And that is totally his grace, totally his gift, all his work. I want us to look at Romans 3, 23 through 24. And we're going to actually copy that. Romans 3. Amber's putting that reference on the screen for us. Romans 3. 23 through 24. Take a moment and copy that, and then we'll talk about it. Romans 3, 23, 24. Those two verses are describing what I was just describing to you as well. And it gives us that word that the Bible, it's the Bible word for what happens to your spirit. It's called justification. A simple way to define that is that Christ, when God looks at you, he sees you just as if you'd never sinned. Okay? It, it, his blood covers your sin and he justifies you and makes you clean. And your spirit comes to life, and that does happen immediately. And that's why it says here on that first line, your spirit, it happens immediately, and it's called justification. 
All right? So that's the timeline of that first part of who you are. And these verses tell us that we're justified as a gift by his grace. It happens to us through the redemption of Christ Jesus. It's his salvation work. And in fact, if you just go a couple chapters over into verse 5, we're not going to, or chapter 5, we're not going to copy this. But in the first two verses, we're told that this justification in our lives is literally an introduction for us into the salvation work of God in our lives. So it's the first thing that he does in our lives. He justifies us. He makes us clean so that his spirit can come to life in us again. Now, what about our bodies, though? Our bodies, in Scripture, are promised a future salvation. All right? I wish it happened right now. I'd love to have a glorified body right now. I don't. That's not God's plan. That's not the timeline of how he's planned it out. He does bring healing to us. This year I've experienced some real healing in an area that I've been seeking God and and, and really taking communion for for the last year, and I've experienced an amazing healing. It's been, it's, it's incredible. So God does touch us, and I fully believe that he heals us and heals our bodies now, but we are promised a complete healing in heaven, a glorified body, and that is a future work, and that's why it says here, your body, it's future, and that is called glorification. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And we're going to copy these, and then we'll talk about them in just a minute. Philippians 3, 20 and 
I'm not sure how your version words it, but I love the version, um, the NASB here, how it talks about our citizenship is in heaven. I love knowing that I'm a citizen of heaven. And we're waiting as citizens of heaven for our Savior to come back and get us is what this is talking about, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. But it tells us one of the things he's going to do when he does. And it's saying that he's going to transform these lowly bodies into the same glorified state that his body was in when he rose up from the grave. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror and I see some of the things that my body... 55 years old almost is is doing these days i'm like i'm looking forward to that i don't know about you i hope you are too but the older you get you probably will be i'm sorry to give you that news but that's just the way it is creams lotions all of it okay you're still gonna wrinkle all right and things are gonna happen in your body but we have a promise for the future for salvation, for this part of who we are, our bodies are going to be transformed into a glorified state. I wonder how he's going to do that when we get to heaven. It says, by the power that he has to subject everything to himself. So is he going to tap us on the head and we're going to like change dramatically? I don't know. I, I mean, he's going to hand us a supplement and, you know, something. I, I don't know what he's going to do. But something's going to happen where we're going to be changed, right? Actually, the Bible does talk about it. Something in the twinkling of an eye will be changed, right? So, in other words, it's going to happen quick. Like, sometimes we wish, like we close our eyes and wish we'd look different, but we don't. And it's going to happen one day. We have a future promise of that for our bodies. And that, that gets me... Uh, pretty excited so to be glorified all right in that way so we have justification for our souls at, I'm sorry for our spirit and we have glor um, glorification for our bodies what about our souls our souls are our mind our will and our emotions and it's our souls that really need a lot of work because when God saves us they have been bent on doing their own thing for a very long time. Our minds have been thinking their own thoughts. They've been being fashioned and shaped by the ways and thought patterns of this world. Our emotions usually have gotten you know, thwarted and distracted and broken and misused and mishandled and, and gotten patterns of emotional responses that are far from what God had in mind for us. Our wills have been leading us away from the will and the righteousness of God for as long as we've been alive until that moment that we're saved. So how does all of that stuff in our souls get fixed? When does God perfectly change our bodies? When on the timeline, I'm sorry, when does he change our souls? When on the timeline does that take place? Well, the Bible speaks a lot about this. And it's called sanctification. Right here you see that. It says soul. It's a present process. And it's called sanctification. Now, sanctification is a fancy word that simply means making something perfect. And it, and it has this idea of a process, meaning like when God saved us, he saved our spirit, it was immediate, like it happened just like that. But sanctification is a process that happens over time. See, once we give our lives to Christ, God begins that process of sanctifying our souls. When you hear the word soul, you need to think of the way you think the way you feel, and your will, the choices that you make. And God wants to perfect those things. He wants to perfect them to his glory. Let's look also at Romans 12. Romans 12, 
verses 1 and 2. Probably a scripture that you're familiar with. We're going to talk about this one a lot tonight. Even if you're familiar with it, copy it down. Let's get it, you know, marinating around and meditating in our heart so we can think about it some more together. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So what you just copied there is God's encouragement to Christians to willingly participate in the process of sanctification. Now, the version you copied might have said to offer your bodies. Don't let that confuse you, okay? Some of the versions say offer your lives. Um, and in the context, the meaning is to basically offer yourselves. Offer everything of who you are, your mind, your will, your emotions, also your body, right? Offer it all to God, the totality of how you live. Offer that to God as a living sacrifice so that he can do that perfect work of sanctification in you. If you notice by looking in that box, there are two things that God does completely on his own, right? 
The first one, he saves our spirits. We don't have anything to do with that other than just saying, yes, please, right? The, the other one for our bodies, we just look forward to it, and it's a gift when we arrive in heaven. It's like our arrival gift. He, he is going to just completely glorify these bodies and make them new. But this one, he holds it out to us as a gift. There's no way that any of what needs to be fixed in us could happen without him, but he invites us into the process, and he encourages us to get involved with him changing the way we think, the way we feel, and the choices that we make. And as many of your versions probably use the word bodies there, the way you think, the way you feel, and the choices that you make definitely affect this body as well while you're on the earth, and so that's why on that. So let's think about sacrifice. Let's zoom in on that word because in these scriptures here, we're called to be a what? A living sacrifice. And we're going to see how that relates back to Psalm 27 where we wrote already tonight, David wrote this, I will offer in his tent what? Sacrifices with what? Shouts of joy. See, most of us probably know that in the Old Testament, when God's children became aware of something in their souls, in other words, some way of thinking or acting or feeling that needed fixing, in other words, they became aware of their sin, God gave them a plan to fix it, and it was to offer a sacrifice. So they would go to the house of God, which would have been the tabernacle or then later the temple, and they would offer sacrifices, which were most of the time animals, ranging from bulls and lambs and rams to you know goats or even pigeons sometimes. But they would bring them into the house of God, which you know um, the priest would be there, and they would offer as a sacrifice to God for that forgiveness that they were longing for. And this is the way that God had set it up for that time in history. And basically, if you can think of it like this, those sacrifices at that time were the means of DIY fixing what was wrong in their lives, okay? It wasn't God's perfect plan, but it was actually setting things up for God's perfect plan, who was Jesus. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But back to the sacrifices that the people were to offer. People back then, sometimes we just think of them as Bible characters. We don't realize, you know, they had real lives and they felt things and they made choices and, and all of that just like we do. And they were probably just as aware as you and I are that things are off, you know, things are needing to be fixed, that we're not right with God a lot of times, that we're not living in his way. So they would bring these sacrifices to offer before God and get that forgiveness. But the problem was the sacrifices were not perfect. They were not perfect. And it was kind of like those DIY fixes I told you about earlier. They were doing the right thing. They were doing what they could to fix the problem, but it was kind of like something was still not just right. Just like I was telling you about in many of the DIY projects in our home. See, in this case of these imperfect sacrifices, what was off was that it wasn't a perfect sacrifice because there would always be some kind of blemish in the lamb or the ram or the bull, whatever it was. But it also was that that sacrifice was only really gonna cover that specific sin or perhaps that past year of sin. So in the moment of sacrifice, you know, once the priest declared them clean, they probably did feel a certain sense of relief, but when they really looked at things closely, they knew that things were not really fixed all the way, okay? Their spirit, was still dead in sin. 
There was no rebirth of the spirit within them in accordance with these sacrifices. The wreckage of sin was still playing out in their bodies. And yes, there were times that God touched people and healed people, even in the Old Testament. But they didn't have a hope of a glorified body when they got to heaven. There was no knowledge of Jesus rising from the dead except for a select few, like we talked about this morning, that maybe had gotten that word of prophecy or God had let them in a little bit on some of the secrets of Christ. And their soul was still prone to sin, right? Prone to wander away from the things of God. So more than likely before much time passed, maybe before they even got home from taking the sacrifice, they would end up right back in the same predicament that they were. Still needing forgiveness. Hebrews 10. Go there with me for that. I want to talk to you about this. Hebrews 10. It describes this very thing. It just lays it out. And I'm going to read the first four verses for you. We're not going to copy all of them. Don't, don't worry. Okay? We are going to copy a little bit, but not the whole thing. But listen to this. It says, for the law, starting in verse 1, for the law, and this would have been the law of sacrifice, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. In other words, it wasn't God's perfect plan yet. Okay? It's just a shadow, a foreshadowing of it. It says, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, it's saying these things were never going to be a perfect fix. Okay? These sacrifices. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offering the sacrifices because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of their sins. In other words, if the sacrifices had completely worked, done a perfect thing, they would not have had to go back year after year to continue offering the sacrifices. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. In other words, uh, okay, we've got to take it care of this year, but we're going to have to do it again next year. Kind of like you paid your taxes this year, but you know you're going to come around to April. Sorry, Daisy. Daisy's a CPA. I just learned that tonight at dinner. But, you know, you're going to have to do it again. It was kind of that feeling of, woo, but oh well, it's coming again soon. We'll have to take care of this. Listen to verse 4. This is what we are going to copy, just this little line. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. I want you to write that out, and then I want you to circle the blood of bulls and goats, and then write out to the side, my sacrifices or my efforts. Okay? And I'm going to do the same. Verse 4, Hebrews 10. So it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, or it's impossible for my efforts, my sacrifices to take away sins. That's pretty sobering, right? But hopefully what it also does 
is that understanding reveals and points to the need for the perfection of Jesus sacrifice that perfect sacrifice that he brings see when Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice the Lamb of God his was a different kind of sacrifice a perfect one so his sacrifice made a perfect and thorough salvation possible he fully fixed things he perfectly fixed things so now when we accept his sacrifice our spirits raised up and what is that called justification right now we're given that promise of a new body in heaven just as he was raised to a glorified state what's that called glorification and now ladies for our souls we're given the hope of full sanctification not just a temporary forgiveness of sins not just a fix so we'll feel better in the moment but real life change where our minds change to become conformed to the mind of Christ, where our emotions are transformed and they're no longer a burden, but they are a blessing that God created them to be so that we can feel the height of life. And we can also experience the, the griefs that he himself bore and that we get to share in as well, but then we find the comfort and the emotion of that. So many people these days numb their emotions and they don't get to experience any of that that God has for them. But God can change all of that. And he can also change our will to where we no longer are slaves to sin, but we are slaves in a good way to righteousness, walking in righteousness, which produces the fruit of righteousness, which is blessing and abundance and prosperity. It's kind of like the hints of heaven right here on the earth. Because we're justified, he can, and because we have that promise of glorification, we are also standing in a place for full sanctification to take place in our lives. And we have his spirit living on the inside of us when we're dwelling in him. So that counseling of the spirit, the teaching, the power, the leading, all these things of the Holy Spirit is readily available to us for these things in our minds, will, and emotions that need to be fixed. He'll counsel us about what sin is and what it isn't. So we can even know what needs to change, right? We, we don't have to listen to what the world says. We can listen to him. He'll teach us how to live in truth, how to really do that, how to walk it out. He'll use the word of God to wash our minds. Some of us need a bath in our minds, a bath of the word of God. He'll use that to also wash our wills and our emotions. He'll prompt us when our minds, our wills, or emotions are headed in a wrong direction. He'll strengthen us with the same power that raised Jesus out of the dead. He will strengthen us to be able to say no or to be able to say yes when we need to say yes to him. He will perfectly change all these things in us that need to be fixed. Without Jesus' sacrifice, we would have access to none of that. But now that he has, we have a living hope that's always pointing us and reaching for us to come to heaven, but also pointing to our mind, will, and emotions and saying, I can change that. I can fix that for you. I am the perfect one and I have a perfect plan. We would not have access to any of that, but we do. And so our right response, what should our right response be? Is from that passage that we copied in Romans where we're urged, we're not made, but we're urged, encouraged to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Meaning, as we're dwelling in Christ and the Holy Spirit 
hides us, draws us in, or lifts us up on the rock of Christ and begins to show us things. And maybe we need to make some changes in things. Or we need to yield to him in this way or that way that we willingly do that. We are willing to do that. Why? Because we know he's doing something good. He's not taking something away from us. He's working out his perfect salvation in our lives. And it's called sanctification. See, no longer is the sin that has broken our lives a DIY issue. Something we have to fix ourselves and settle for the results that are less than perfect. In Christ, our salvation is something that has happened, that is happening and will happen. He has justified us. He is sanctifying us and he will glorify us. I want to read this also to you from Hebrews chapter 10. You're already there. It's verse 14. Listen to what it says. It's a short one, but it's powerful for by the one offering Jesus has perfected for all time. Those who are sanctified by the one offering it didn't take year after year. He did it one time. I want you to copy that. Hebrews 10, cha um, chapter 10, verse 14. Your version might read a little different. Copy down what it says. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the news that we ought to be able to not only know ourselves, to be able to talk it out in biblical language as daughters who dwell in the house, but also to just live in this daily. To live in this daily, to realize that any time the Holy Spirit's asking us to make any kind of sacrifice, it's doing something good. So we won't resist it. It's impossible without his sacrifice. He calls us to get involved, though. And here's the substance of what I believe God wants to impress upon us tonight. His sacrifice should totally change the cost of anything he asks me to change. Should totally change it. Totally change that. Because he set me up for success. And I can really have hope for my soul to be free to live God's best life. I don't have to settle. As I sacrifice my mind, my will, my emotions are truly being made new and beautiful in the goodness of all God has for me. See, generally, most people don't put sacrifice and joy in the same sentence, right? We, we just don't do that because we all know that sacrifice is really hard. And sacrifice is sacrifice. You're sacrificing time, money, energy, affection, your own choices, your own thoughts, all of these different things. But God does put it in the same sentence because why? He sees it from heaven's victorious perspective. He's not looking at the sacrifice like we look at the sacrifice like we talked about this morning, just straight on. He's up in heaven looking down on it. He's already seeing the huge picture of what Jesus' sacrifice has done for us. And so he's urging us to sacrifice. He knows how 
fully, Jesus' sacrifice has set us up to be completely sanctified. And I believe David knew it too. See, in the time that David lived, there was probably little joy in the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Because as we've seen at that time, it didn't really fix anything fully. It was a temporary DIY fix. But remember, David wrote Psalm 27 with some level, we don't know to what extent, but some level of revelation of Jesus. And so that's why I think we can see him in the middle of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, where there wasn't any joy in sacrifice. Talk about sacrificing with what? Not just a little bit of joy, but what kind of joy? A shout of joy. He was so excited to be able to bring the sacrifice. That wouldn't have been able to happen under the old covenant. So he had to have seen something of Jesus. So let's look at this statement that he makes. We're going to break it apart quickly. First he says, and I will offer. Do you see? It's his choice here. And God gives us the choice. Even in Romans 12, we're urged, we're encouraged, maybe your version said. God's not demanding that we become a living sacrifice, but he's urging us to do it. David's making a choice here in the house of the Lord to bring his sacrifice. He was doing it willingly. And then he says, in his tent, and I will offer in his tent, meaning he's going to offer the sacrifice in God's house. And don't you just know that in God's house, the knowledge of Jesus is everywhere, right? Because he is the house. So especially for us, we may not know exactly for David because again, operating maybe on limited revelation, but for us, when we dwell, we're literally dwelling in Christ. So you step into the house of Christ. The knowledge of Jesus' sacrifice is all over the house. So it's continually reminding us that God has done a perfect work, a thorough work, a complete work. And so we don't have to get caught up in looking at a certain area of our lives that we just can't ever seem to fix or get it right. And we've been working on this our whole life and it's just a pattern we can't get over or whatever it is. We don't have to do that because when we dwell in the house, we're always surrounded with the artwork or the knowledge or the voices telling about it, the stories, the redemption testimonies, all of it. It's all in the house. It's all about Jesus' sacrifice. And that's not to make us feel like, oh, I should feel so awful because Jesus died for me. And we should have a sense of reverence and gratefulness about that. But one of the things that Jesus has shown me in my whole communion experience that I've been working through the last couple of years is that, you know, when I buy somebody a gift, even if it's a huge sacrifice for me to buy them a gift and I give it to them, I hate it when they're like, oh, you shouldn't have done this. I wish you hadn't bought this for me. I wish you hadn't spent that money. Oh, I feel so bad that you did that. that I'm just like, take the gift, right? What I really want to see is them loving the gift and using the gift. I just want them to thank me and hug me and be glad and, and enjoy the gift. And for so long, for me personally, I grew up in a church where we took communion every single week. And I never was taught what to do with that. And, and in my pleasing ways and always wanting everybody to be happy, and there was not a real great understanding of the gospel for me personally I'm not saying it wasn't taught but I didn't get it for a really long time even though I accepted Jesus at eight I would sit there and I wouldn't know what I was supposed to do I would think about Jesus being on the cross and then I would think I'm supposed to feel really sad some people around me might would have a tear and I would feel bad because I didn't have tears and I just didn't know what to do with it I think okay I think you're supposed to confess your sins so I try to think of everything I've done wrong the past week and and but I always left the experience feeling like I didn't do that right. I hope I did it right. I'm not sure if I did. It's 
supposed to maybe be a little magical. I, you know, I just really didn't know what to do with it. And so when I graduated high school and moved off on my own and started going to some different churches and they didn't have communion every week, I would think, oh, that's what it is. We just did it too much. We took communion too much. It just became commonplace. And so, you know, that, it wasn't me. But still, when I would take it, I really didn't, if I was truly honest, I really didn't even know what to, I would try to do those things, but I really didn't have a sense of what it was really all about. But then, in these last two years, the Lord has begun to teach me about communion. And there's so many things. I mean, I could literally spend a whole weekend talking about it. But what I would say to you now is sometimes I think it's, we, we have this sense that we're always supposed to feel, ooh, that Jesus died for us. He gave us a gift. It's a gift that brings about life. It, yes, we should say thank, thank you. Yes, we should have a certain sense of reverence and gratefulness and humility that he would do such a thing for us. What a gift. But I really don't believe, one of the things he revealed to me during my communion experience, he doesn't want us to sit there going, oh, I feel so bad, Jesus, that you did that for me. I wish you hadn't done that for me. I wish you hadn't done that. Oh, that, that is too much, just too much. He wants to see us use the gift. And the gift is to bring life. The gift is to bring transformation in our lives, that we would celebrate his gift, that there would be joy in our lives, in the house, because his gift is going to do a work. Actually, in, um, and I hadn't even planned on really getting into this part tonight, but, but in 2 Corinthians, we won't go there right now, but Paul talks about communion, and he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what you're actually doing when you take communion or when you acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus is that you're proclaiming the death of Christ. You're saying his death was enough. His death has done a perfect work in me. His death has fully saved me, spirit, soul, and body. I don't have to receive the death of this worry. I don't have to receive the death of this fear. I don't have to receive the death of this sickness. And we proclaim the death of the Lord. And Paul is giving us permission to do that as often as we want to do it. As often as you want to do it. So isn't it interesting that I, in my pride, at 18, thought I knew everything. Was like, oh, we did that communion too much. And now the Lord has me doing it daily. Sometimes multiple times a day. And just receiving the wonderful things. You know, I like cupcakes. I could eat those three times a day for the rest of my life. Or ice cream. Boy, I can eat of the Lord's sacrifice as often as I want. And it's much better for me than a cupcake. Cupcakes are nice too. And I think Jesus would like cupcakes. Okay, I think he would eat them just like he drank wine when he was on the earth. There was joy in the things that he created. But his sacrifice, the point is, his sacrifice is all over the house. And when we really understand the details and the um, work that his sacrifice did for the totality of who we are, spirit, soul, and body, it changes our cost and our view of sacrifice. It's a privilege to be able to willingly lay these things on the altar as a living sacrifice in our lives. We will forget, though, and that's why the Lord gives us communion. He gives us an experience, and he gives us that invitation to willingly, continually remember his sacrifice. If we lived in the house physically, he would be serving us a meal, just like our mother would have served us a meal three times a day, right? He would be serving us the meal 
right? But we don't. And so he gives us the opportunity to take that ourselves. And whether or not it's physically taking communion, which I believe there's great power in that, but whether or not it's that or just being aware of his sacrifice, it changes everything in regard to how we view giving things up. See, so often we think of the things that God asks us to give up and we have, a, oh, but it's so hard. And we sit in Bibles, oh, it's so hard. I've been trying really hard to stop gossiping and I'm working really, really hard. That's a DIY attitude. That's all about you and your effort and your this and that. When it's Jesus' sacrifice, he's done the work. He put his spirit inside of me. He's there to counsel me, to teach me how to do it, to show me what to do, to lift me up and give me an elevated view. He gives me power. Do you see the difference? Do you see that he's already done the work? He's already given us the deposit of his spirit within us. He's already given us a promise of what's going to happen for our body. Can we not get involved with him with a joyful heart for the other things that he's asking of us? And then see the glory even begin to happen as we are sanctified. So amazing to live in the house and have that view of his sacrifice. Changes everything. So let's get really practical here and talk about that a little bit. Because the reality is, every one of us in this room, myself included, have broken things on the inside of us that need to be fixed still. We might have been a believer for a long, long time, and I have been since I was eight years old, but there are things that need to be fixed. There are things in our souls, ways that we think, ways that we act, ways that we are feeling that need to be fixed. Maybe it's the sin of anger. Maybe there's immorality in your life. Maybe overeating, like I shared about this morning. Maybe laziness. Maybe bitterness has taken a root in your heart, even in just a little way. The Bible's very clear. Don't even let it take root because it will grow quick. <laughs> Selfishness, greed, fill in the blank, anything. The reality of these broken places is that many times probably all of us have heard that urging of the Holy Spirit to offer something, to do something a little bit different, right? To lay something down that we would normally do and change it. And as he lives inside of us, he's going to give us those urgings and, and work in those promptings to become that living sacrifice that Romans talks about. And he'll provide all that we need to do it, but we have to respond. And we might ignore, we might neglect, we might put off to another time. Maybe we're rebellious, resistant. We have that burden. If I have to, I will. This is so hard, but I'm going to obey God. Or joy. And joy is what should define the person who dwells in the house. Joy. Joy. And here's what I believe makes all the difference. It's whether or not you dwell. Because when you dwell, you're going to always be aware of the sacrifice of Jesus. You're going to be aware of that. When I'm dwelling in the house, I'm reminded of his sacrifice. It's all over the house. It's not in a guilt way, but a grateful way. So anything the Holy Spirit asks me to sacrifice, if I'm in the house, I can do it with joy. Because Jesus already offered the perfect sacrifice. I'm not left to figure it out on my own. Or to search out every book that's going to tell me the next five steps that I need to do. I'm not saying those books are wrong. Sometimes Jesus will lead you to them, but they shouldn't be your first, your first, you know, response to go find a book. There's a book and it's got a lot of answers in it. It's got the presence of the Lord in it. And you will be amazed at what he will show you in that book. 
We've got Jesus' perfect example. We know that he has our good in mind, that he knows us better than anybody knows us. Even a counselor. Counselor's great, but they can't counsel you like the, the, the great counselor. I've never really, I've, I've gone to counseling a couple times, and I'm not saying counseling's bad. But I do know that the counseling I have received from the Holy Spirit when I've taken the time to dwell in Him has healed me way far more than anything ever I received in a counseling office. I personally feel like counseling, the way it looks in the Christian community these days, is way far away from what God originally intended. And that's a whole other thing for another day. But the point is that we press into dwelling in Him and let Him fix these things that He's already died to fix anyway. I can offer my sacrifice willingly with a shout of joy because I, I, there's total provision. It's not a DIY thing. But when I don't live in the house, my perspective is going to be so different. I'll feel the pressure to become perfect. I'm going to believe I have to work harder to figure it out on my own. I'm going to fall victim to the lie that I'm powerless. I'm going to look to other people. I'm going to question God's intentions. I'm going to resist. I'm going to neglect. I'm going to put off. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to complain about sacrificing. It's the difference between a DIY. I have to fix me. I have to do my best. I've got to strive and settle with whatever I can bring to the altar for Jesus and his sacrifice is perfect. So with shouts of joy, I live and move and have my being in who he is as he continues the process of perfecting me. In his house, we behold his sacrifice, ladies, so we can sacrifice with joy, knowing that every time we make a sacrifice, he's perfecting us and he's moving our souls on to glories and glories of his goodness. Living with the mind of Christ, there's nothing better. Living with emotions that have been healed and set free, there's nothing better. Having our will conform to Christ and we're no longer slaves to sin, it's only going to usher in the abundance of God's glory over our lives. And we can't even imagine how much glory. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we're not going to copy this, so you can just listen if you want. Um, I specifically love the way that the New American Standard reads this here. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, you might want to drop down the address, but it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's plan for every one of his children, that our spirit, our soul, and our body be totally, fully, completely saved. He has done the work and he invites us in to join in on it. We have one more scripture we're going to copy tonight. It's from 2 Corinthians if you want to turn there. Chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. I want to read it for you. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Ladies, let's copy that down. We'll talk about it for just a moment as we bring things to a close.
this scripture would be a really great one to just meditate on for a season because I don't think, in fact, I know for me and I imagine for many of you, we don't even have an, any idea of the glories that God has in mind for us. The things, if we would participate in the ways he urges us and prompts us, we don't have any idea of the glory after glory after glory that he has in mind. As we dwell in his house, there's a divine mirror that I think we get to look into that this verse points to. It says, we behold as in a mirror the glories of Christ. You know, normally you look into a mirror and you see your image. But in the house of God, I think there's this divine mirror that you look into, you see the image of Christ. And then the, the divinity of this mirror is that when you get the reflection back, you're seeing the, the reflection of Jesus in you and what he looks like in you. Does that make sense? So you look in the mirror, instead of seeing yourself, you see Jesus, and then the reflection that you get back is how much of Jesus is reflected in you. Pretty interesting to look into that mirror. But what this is saying is the more that we are being transformed in Christ, we're going to see, every time we walk by and glance in the mirror, we're going to see more and more glory. It's like, oh, I look good. And then you walk by a little later, oh, wow, I like that. Okay? And then more and more glory. And that's what it should be. See, we, in this life, we go to the mirror like, oh, right? Or that magnified mirror like, whoa, I didn't know about that. But it's the complete opposite when we look in the mirror in the house. We get in the house and we look in it, we see Jesus, and we begin as we participate in this sanctification process to see him reflected in us. And we're like, wow, I look good. I like that glory. And I like that glory and that glory. And it's from glory to glory to glory and it just keeps getting better and better and better just as from the Lord the Spirit and from that we can say and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with what with a shout of joy because I like me some glory do you like glory I, I mean I like glory and so I can do that with joy God has set us up for sanctification success we dwell in the house and we participate and we get to experience this glory. Lord, you are good. You're so, so good. Your sacrifice is so perfect. May we respond, God, with full surrender, being willing to lay our lives down with full sacrifice. God, whatever you ask of us, whatever you ask us to change, whatever you ask us to do differently, whatever you ask us to step into or away from, God, Whatever you ask us to open our minds to or open our mouth toward and speak, whatever you ask us to do, God, may we be willing to do that with a shout of joy because of what Jesus has done for us and the promise, the living, hope-filled promise that that brings to the salvation of our souls. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. And amen. 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 amen.